So this past week, um, my kids had doctor's appointments. They were called wellness checks or something like that. And um, afterwards, I got home and um, I said, Ellie, uh, how were the doctor's appointments? Uh, usually because they're very eventful. Um, and there, uh, these, there were some shots, so um, uh, it was eventful. And um, she said, uh, pretty good. And then she started giving me all these statistics and data. Now, uh, to understand this, you have to understand, uh, well, if, you've, if you have kids, if you've had kids, um, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, here's how it works. Um, the entire time that you are anticipating having a child, you are, your thoughts are consumed with one thing, which is the uniqueness and individual uh, superiority of your child compared to all other people on earth. Uh, specifically, my child is going to be so different and special uh, than all these other people out there, right? That's what we want, right? Uh, maybe you even like name them, you know, Apple or bookcase or something because that's like that's going to seal the deal, right? That's going to guarantee it. Then what happens is the moment that you have a child, that they are born, you go to the doctor, uh, your life then becomes completely consumed with this thing called percentiles, okay? And uh, this is a percentile chart, and uh, I, you can't read it, but I'll tell you what it says. Um, Basically, this is the point at which you realize, well, now I would actually really like more than anything for my child to be exactly as normal and average as they can possibly be. Uh, I don't want them to be taller than they're supposed to be or shorter. I don't want them to weigh more or weigh less. So when you, when you go to the doctor with a baby under three years old, there's two charts that they'll basically, there's three. There's three that you'll look at. One is length, which I guess because babies lay down, eventually becomes height. I'm pretty sure I didn't check this, but we're going to go with that. Um, length, weight, or BMI, body mass index, um, and then head size, basically. So it's like the dark ages, apparently. We just go, you know, if you want to know how smart they're going to be, put a tape measure on their head, and there you go. They're going to be one of the smart ones or whatever. No, that's not why they do that. At least I don't think. Again, I didn't research that. But the point is this. Uh, in anticipation of having a child, you want nothing more than the most unique individual child that you can have. Uh, then you have a child, and you're like, please don't be different. Please be normal. Okay, the way it works is not, oh, wouldn't it be cool if they were twice as big as all the other kids, right? Like, wouldn't it be cool if they were weighed twice as much as all the other kids? Wouldn't it be the best if they had twice as big of a head as all the other kids, right? They would just be the best, right? They would be a supervillain if they had a head that was twice as big as all the other kids. Guaranteed, that's the only thing you'll know for sure about this kid. And you become obsessed with these things, and it begins to be like everything, you know, like, where are they on the chart? Where are they going to fall on the chart? Where are they and then Ellie told me, she's like, well, you know, you know he's, he's 50th percentile in, like, uh, length or whatever, high, uh, 90th percentile in weight. I don't know what 90th means. I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, I still don't. Um, I don't know if 50th is good or bad, because I obviously stopped paying attention to this stuff. But this is like everything, right? And the reason for it, uh, oh, we also have parent-teacher conferences next week. And so we're going to go in and we're going to find out. It's our daughter's first year of kindergarten and Tegan's second grade. So we're going to find out, um, you know, where they stand, right? Now, if you went to parent-teacher conferences and, and they said, so uh, your child is uh, right, right in the middle. They're just right in the middle. They're like average in my class, right? Okay, thanks. See ya, right? Yeah, maybe try to get them up to here, right? No, it doesn't really work that way, right? Because when it comes to, well, they, that would be like, really mean, I guess, but uh, they're, they're supposed to give you more information than that. Um, if they don't, then you know they use those days off to just kind of do whatever they wanted, but you go in, and the, the point is this, like, beyond physical stuff, then you get back to the intellect, you get back to the emotional stuff, you're like, no, here we go, this is it, okay, I don't care, how, I want them to be as smart as they can be, right? Middle school age doctor, absolutely, like, let's go for that, right? Let's go for the most, like, the best personality, strongest, you know, whatever, I, let's go for all of it, right? Then all of a sudden, again, it becomes about, like, there is, the sky's the limit, nothing's too high, nothing's too good, right? Uh, because this is the way that growth works, 
The way that growth works with people is not everything grows in the same way. At least we don't want all the same things, right? If you said, uh, you know, if somebody was like, hey, so how's your son doing? He's like, pretty good. He's twice as big as he was last year, right? I guess that would be good if they were like three, but it wouldn't be good if they were like 18, you know? That actually happens when people turn 18, but, uh, you know, right around that time, it gets kind of, kind of fuzzy and kind of foggy, and you just don't really know what's going to happen. But the point is this. Growth looks very different. Uh, and, and all kinds of things in the world grow at different rates and different ways. And so uh, the question of, like, whether someone is actually growing the way they should, whether they're maturing the way they should, is not quite so black and white as we would often think that it is. We've been in this series called Life Upside Down, and we've been talking about the kingdom of God and how uh, the values of that kingdom call, cause, call us to live in a way that is actually, it seems, a complete reversal of the way that it seems like the rest of the world is living. And, but that's not because they're wrong. It, it's actually because they're how we are intended to live in the first place. This week, we're talking about one that is specific in that it applies to Christians. This one applies to Christians in the sense that... Um, if you are a person who is seeking to follow Jesus, who, who, who calls yourself a Christian, who is, long, is desiring to live out the values of this upside-down kingdom, then uh, you should be asking yourself this question a lot. Am I growing? Am I maturing? In fact, I think you can make the argument that Christians, followers of Jesus, uh, should care about the idea of growth and maturity um, in a way that isn't just the physical side of things. As I grow old, as I, as I grow up, um, how do I know that I'm further along tomorrow than I was yesterday, right? I know I'm older, I know I'm in a new season of life, but what does that actually look like? And what, we'll actually, what we see, and the reason why we're looking at this this morning is because um, the idea of what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus, to mature beyond where we are now, is actually flipped upside down from what most Christians think that it often is. Um, it's an area where we tend to get it backwards because of the way that, that we expect everything works. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage in Philippians chapter 3. And you can turn there if you want. We're going to get there in a second. We are going to do a... We're going to look at a lot of scripture in a very short amount of time. Um, and we're going to talk about this because um, it's important first to understand when you're talking about this issue to understand exactly what the Bible says about it. And so I want to start, uh, I'm going to put, so everything but the thing in Philippians, um, I'll just put up on the screen. You don't need to turn to because we're going to kind of be jumping around, but you can stay in Philippians and we'll get to there eventually. So the first question is this, uh, okay, what's the goal, right? What are we, what are we trying to do? What does it mean to, uh, to you know, what, what, is, what is the end goal that, that, how am I trying to behave? What am I trying to be like? And, uh, and, and believe it or not, this is actually a question that people ask Jesus quite a bit. Jesus, what do you actually want us to do? How do you want us to live? Could you sum it up? Could you maybe encapsulate it a little bit? Uh, and people would often ask Jesus uh, how he would sum up the law itself, because the law was the way that God told his people that they were to live. He wanted them to show the world that they were God's people, by living in a way that was distinct, that was different. And so uh, the law was the way to do that. The law was how you knew that you were doing well as you were going forth in life. So Jesus makes it easy, he sums it up. In Matthew 22, he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love other people. Um, love God with everything you have. Love people as much as you love yourself. This is how we were intended to live. Before sin came in the picture, messed everything up. This is how life was in the garden. Uh, you could actually love others as naturally as you could love yourself. Could you even imagine if you get up tomorrow and just, it was as easy to treat other people with love as it is to treat yourself with love? Most of the people that probably feel like it's super easy to treat other people with love, maybe that's because you don't really treat yourself very well. You don't really love yourself at all. And, uh, and, and so you think, well, I don't know, maybe you need to love yourself a little bit more um, and, and then kind of go from there. 
But this, this idea, love God, love others, is pretty simple. Okay, good. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about like what Jesus is getting at. So let's do that, right? So let's say you decide you're going to follow Jesus. You're going to be a part of this kingdom. You're convinced. And so you wake up tomorrow and you say, this is what my life will be about. I'm going to love God. I'm going to love others. And then you try every day, day in and day out, to love God and love others. And eventually, it gets very difficult to do this. You begin to realize um, how much you're not able to do it, how, how difficult it is to actually love other people. So, so you go, man, people are way harder to love than maybe I thought it was. Uh, God is harder to love than I thought he was. God, God isn't doing what I thought he was going to do. He isn't even being who I thought he was going to be in this. He's handing me circumstances and, and sometimes absent in ways that makes it very difficult for me to love him the way that I'm supposed to. Well, if you're at all self-aware, then you hopefully will get to a point where, you're, where you will realize, oh, wait a second, the reason it's so hard to love other people and love God is because of me. I seem to be naturally kind of bad at doing this, at loving people, loving God. And so even though I'm following Jesus, even though maybe I, I, you know, I, I've received the gospel, I've responded to it, and I'm, I'm living for him, even then, I am realizing that the harder I try to live the way he wants me to, it seems, the more I fail at it. The more that I devote myself to it, the more I fail at it. So you're banging your head against the wall, and you realize I'm not very good at this thing, loving God and loving others, which is the goal of what it is that we're supposed to do. Well, the authors in the New Testament put words to this feeling quite a bit as they endeavor to do the same thing. Paul's one of those who describes it so thoroughly, especially in the book of Romans. He talks about this idea that you're given the law, what you're supposed to do, and yet uh, the harder you try to do it, the more it seems like all it really does is make you aware of how bad you are at, at doing it, at loving God and loving people. He says this in Romans 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He, he's saying it, it makes me so aware of this sin that I almost wonder if I just didn't have the law at all, if I got rid of it at all, would I not be better off? Would we not be better off? Because all it seems to do is remind us all of how bad we are at following it. He says the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And then he says this. So I find it to be a law that when I do, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, no matter how hard I try, my members, I mean, the physical, my physical body, my hands, my feet, my legs, my, like everything physically that I seem to try to do seems to lead me right back to death. I'm not able to do this. And you get a sense that he feels pretty hopeless about it. He says, oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? I have. Well, this is where the good news comes in. Because you see, when you encounter trying so hard to live as you're supposed to live, and all you feel like it does is show you how much you're failing at it, and you feel maybe the hopelessness of that, this is where the answer comes in. Now, for God's, for God's people, for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, um, they had this thing that they figured out, which was, well, you know, it is hard to love God and love people, but there are some parts of the law that are fairly easy once you get used to the, the routine of them. There's some traditions that we have. There are some sacrificial things that we can do, you know, like actually killing animals. I don't mean like sacrificing of your, yourself internally. Uh, the idea of, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's religious uh, occasions and events that we can remember. Uh, there's rites and practices, things that we can do to show that we're pure, things like circumcision, uh, things like holy days that they would remember. Uh, we, can, we can learn and memorize the law. We can learn and memorize it. They even realize, hey, it's actually a lot easier to teach the law than to do it, 
which I got to tell you guys, very true. It is much easier to teach other people how to do it. And it is much more enjoyable, by the way, to spend your time thinking about how to teach other people to do it. And then, you know, actually having to figure out how to do it yourself. That is not quite as fun, it seems. And so he realizes this too and, and, and talks about the way that people, it seems, actually, uh, there's, there's, there's this calling to people who are believers. He says, he says you know, do you, do you who teach others even do the things that you teach them? You who, you who are circumcised, do you even live out this people that you're now a part of because of that? You who offer these sacrifices, do you actually sacrifice anything of yourself and loving God and loving other people really? And they go, no. And then that begins to be what religious groups and people are known for, is people who are really good at the rituals, really good at the practices, really good at the customs, really good at saying, what does it mean to be a good Jewish person? That I can probably do. Uh, And I'll just start there. For those that recognize I just can't do this thing, called growing up, this thing called being anywhere further tomorrow than I was yesterday in Jesus. The solution is the gospel, is that Jesus comes, he brings us hope, and he says, this is why the gospel isn't something in which you were saved, but in which you are living, in which you continue to grow in and live in in the future. You're going to need the gospel all the time to bring you back to this place of saying, but it isn't really just about me trying as hard as I can to love God and love other people. That, that I'm going to need Jesus every step of the way in this. And so, you, so you, you acknowledge that, you have Jesus in your life, and then what do you do? How do you actually grow? How do you mature still? Well, Paul talks about this in Philippians in the passage that we're going to read. He talks about what he himself tries to do what he lives towards, the goal that he sets out in front of himself. And it's a little bit hard to catch and pick out in even some of these, the most inspiring and best-known passages where Paul talks about it. And that's what we're going to read this morning. It's Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, now that's him talking again about all the stuff that he was able to do to make himself a good Jewish person. All the things that he was good at, all the ways that people looked at him and recognized You're a pretty grown-up guy. You're a pretty mature guy. You're on the right track. I want my kids to be like you. He said, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here, Paul talks about his goal, the thing that he strives towards, and he will continue to use language of a race, of running, of competing, because that is really how life feels, is you're straining on towards the goal that you've identified, the thing that you want to attain. And what does he say his is? Every time he seems to get to it and you're waiting for something really tangible, you're like, wait, what is that again? What is he talking about? He says this, it's, the goal is this, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul, you already know Jesus, that I may gain Christ. Paul, you already have Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You've got faith, you seem pretty righteous. And he says again, The goal is that I may know him. These are the things that Paul is trying to do. This is the stuff that he's striving for. What he says is that he is leaning into and running fast towards this idea of knowing Christ. Not just knowing about him, he says, but having faith, believing in him, trusting in him. He goes on to say this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. See, first rule of growing up and maturing is you probably shouldn't say, now I'm grown up, now I'm mature. He says, I forget what lies behind me, and I strain on to the goal to what lies ahead. And he says, this is how those of us who are mature, and what he means by mature is he means you're not an infant in the faith. You're actually living now toward the right goal here. He says this and describes the, the life of a person who, who grows who matures as the life of somebody who it seems is getting more of Jesus. So I want more of him. I want to know him more. I want to trust him more. I want to understand him more. You're like, yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, I know, but like that's, that's but still the specifics, that's the stuff that we really go for, right? The better thing is knowing Christ. His goal in life is now to every day through all situations and circumstances know Christ more. Peter says essentially the same thing. Commentators will bridge Paul's language of knowing Christ, that phrase knowing Christ, they'll bridge it together in several places of the Old and the New Testament with the same concept of, of a relational of a relational knowledge of him is. Another place where you see it used is, is 2 Peter, where Peter, again, someone growing up in the Jewish faith, someone well-known for uh, the kind of, uh, well, somebody who was very familiar with what it means to uh, be obedient to all these rituals and practices and to this culture of the Jewish faith. He says this, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He says the goal is to partake of the divine nature, to take on, to have, to experience the nature of God in my life more. And what he's essentially describing is displacing myself. Nowhere I think, well, another place where this is summed up so well is in the Old Testament. In, uh, in Jeremiah, we read this in chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What all of these people are describing is that the process of growing, the process of maturing, is not about more of myself. It's not about me becoming a better me. Me learning more being more disciplined, behaving better, being someone that people would look to and say, you're so amazing. But instead, it is less of me. All of this language of, of knowing Christ, the divine nature, it is the idea, the concept that there is less of me tomorrow than there was yesterday. And there is more Christ and of God himself in me tomorrow than there was yesterday. I am making room in my life for him rather than trying to make myself better. Growing in this upside down way of seeing things is about becoming less. It's not about becoming more. And for many who are Christians, for many who, who go to church and who endeavor to live for Jesus, and are so earnest in an effort to do that, the mistaken belief is that what it means to become mature is to become more of who I am, a better who I am. And even after the gospel becomes a part of our life, to then think, yeah, but now what I need to do 
is I need to follow more rules. I need to develop more discipline. I need to gain tons more knowledge. And those are the things that measure whether or not I'm a grown-up tomorrow compared to where I was yesterday. Rather than the idea of less, less of me and more of you. Building ourselves up by learning more, doing more, being capable of more is not the way to grow. Just as Paul had to stop trying to be a better and more religious Jew, we have to stop trying to be better and more religious Christians. Instead, we are to empty ourselves out more, to learn how to receive, how to respond, and how to react to the immense force that is God. When you, when you read about the glory of God, you're reading about the weight of God. You're reading about the idea that there is so much to God that it displaces things. Think about pushing a washing machine into a swimming pool and the splash that that would make. That is the weight of something displacing all of what's around it. And so the idea is that God is so big and he is so real that he affects and reverberates everything in creation. And that for me to grow is to be better at living in light of that fact versus what most will spend their lives doing, which is to be better at living a life that says, God's not there, I'm on my own. Even in trying to follow Jesus, I'm on my own. The more self-sufficient I become, the more disciplined I become, the more capable I become, the stronger I become, the smarter I become, the more grown up I am. But if it's true that God is the source of all life, that God is glory, that, that even in, in heaven, that he is the sun that brings light to the sky, that we will worship him as a response to being there in his, in his presence more than anything else, then growing and maturing is more about me saying, uh, how do I make as much room as I can for the glory of God, for the weight of God, for the holiness of God? And it's really hard to talk about things in the negative, to just say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Don't be like this, don't try to do this, don't try to focus on these things. There are, I think, things that you see that develop in the lives of people who strive to be like this but because of their nature they're not things that we often look for they're not things that we often hold up and celebrate they're not things that we ourselves spend much time trying to be or to do but these are the things that you see as basically the path both the path and it seems the goal of what it is to grow up the first of these is this be more humble. If you want to grow in Christ, if you want to be more mature tomorrow than you were yesterday, if you want to be more mature in the next season of life than you are in this one, if you want to be more mature when you're 80 than when you're 8, then be more humble. Because we start out thinking that we're a bigger deal than we are. And we will then spend our lives constantly being shown through one way or another that we're not as big of a deal as we think we are. Humility is measured by a person's ability to simply consider others over themselves. To acknowledge with our actions and our attitude, the way that we live, that I am not actually the most important person in my universe. The agreement that we have with everybody is that you're the most important person in your universe, I'm the most important person in my universe, we, we try to even raise kids saying, you're the most important person in my universe, but you're not supposed to be the most important person in the universe, right? And because of this, most of us are immature in the area of humility. We don't strive for this in the way that we strive for other things. And so because of it, we simply can manage to often show basically the level of humility that is kind of acceptable in the world today. And that level is always changing. It's constantly changing. There are times where it is, it is good to be this humble. There are times when that's not loving yourself enough and you must be this humble. I mean, you must be this uh, different level of humility, but there's a really great reason why. 
You see, uh, what leads us to sort of the pride and the arrogance in the way that we approach the world in our whole lives, being the center of our universe, is the fact that we don't actually think that we have any value. You see, God creates us, and because of that, and he creates us in his image, we, have, we are so valuable that we don't need to spend our lives proclaiming how great we are, how wonderful we are as a creation of God. That, that to put others before ourselves is actually not an indication of our value. Paul says, if you don't believe me, Jesus, he did it. He's a pretty big deal. He's pretty valuable. He's pretty important. And he humbled himself way more than you're ever going to. Was it because he didn't matter? No. Because the truth is, if you believe that you are valuable, then you don't have to spend your life trying to prove it all the time. It is instead the life of a person who believes there's nothing inherently valuable about me or, the, or, or my existence or my life, and so I have to spend my whole life trying to prove to, to the world and to myself that I matter, that I'm important, that I'm significant enough. And our life becomes about that. You say, I don't want to be somebody who has to be humble. Because humility is for losers. Humility is for people that aren't great. Humility is for people that can't be proud. Humility is for people that don't do well living life. And that's if you believe this. You believe that the way that other people hold you in comparison to them is some measure of who you really are, of the value you have. And so, I serve. I serve children, I serve my spouse, I serve my friends, I serve my neighbors, I serve my enemies, I serve my co-workers, I serve my bosses, I serve the people who have more than me, I serve the people who have less than me. Why do I do that? Because I'm essentially a walking billboard for God. I am a person who is intended to point other people to God, rather than to point them to myself constantly. Humility is a mark of one who is seeking to empty themselves out and fill themselves more up with God. The other is to be more trusting. You have to skip slides here. I'm actually another one. There we go. Okay, you can see. To be more trusting. To actually trust God more tomorrow than I did yesterday, is to mature. It's to grow. That's undeniable. And as I was talking to people about this idea of trusting God this last week, I kept, something kept bothering me about the conversations that we were having. And it was that the more that we talked about this, it, it always just felt like we just kept coming back to the same situations in life. The situations where we have no control over things, Right? Right? When do you have to deal with this idea of trusting God? It's when things happen in my life that I can't control. That's when I get on my knees and I say, God, I don't know how to trust you in this. I know I need to trust you in this. I know that I only, the only choice I have is to simply trust you in this or to not in this situation that I can't possibly change. God, would you do something with this? And yet it felt like no matter how much we talk about it, that's such a limited part of our lives. When you think about all the stuff that we do all day, all the decisions we make, all the things that we care about and think about and pray about and do. And so how is that possible that this thing that seems so big can only apply to such a small portion of our lives? And I realized it's because so many of us have such an immature understanding of trust that we believe that trust is the thing you do when you have no control. Rather than a measure of trust is that trusting is measured by your ability to give to God the things that you can control. What does it look like to be mature? What does it look like to be grown up, to be able to say, God, I trust you in this thing that I myself can control. I bring you into this thing and I rely on you in this situation that I have control over. I mean, I would have to really trust you to believe that it's not necessarily going to work out in such a way that you go, how about this? You just do whatever you think is best, and then if I don't think you should do it, I'll take it out of your hands, and then I'll deal with it. I'll force you to do it. Then you'll learn. That sounds a lot like immaturity. 
every once in a while, very, very rarely, my kids will get into a fight. And when they get into a fight, we'll force them into this incredibly, you laugh really loud there, Ellen. Uh, when they get into a fight, we force them into this incredibly, I'm sure, like, not great, probably down the road, long-term, very unhealthy practice of like forcefully apologizing to each other, right? And it's, and it's, it's say you're sorry, I'm sorry, say you forgive them, I forgive you. Okay, now hug. Okay, maybe do it again, right? Like it's, come on, let's make this convincing. Let's, let's try that one more time, right? And we do that. We, and it's not, I, I don't think that in, that in their minds it means quite the same thing as the situations where they, uh, they just go ahead and do that on their own. Now, there's something about being forced to do something that it doesn't really mean quite as much as when you actually choose to do it of your own volition. And so instead to say, I can control how I choose to spend my money, will I still give it over to God, the control of that thing? Will I trust him? I can control how I'm going to raise my kids. Will I still give it over to God and trust him? I can control how I choose to spend my money. Do I still give it over to God? I can control the kinds of relationships I choose to have. Do I still give that over to God? I can control how much I'm going to allow fear dictate the way that I live, my health and my security. And I think that trust is hardest for those who have experienced a lot of freedom a lot of liberty and then you maybe add in a bunch of abundance and what you get is this sense that to choose for myself to be in control for myself is inherently a good thing that it served me well and the idea of trusting someone else something else that's bigger than you you'd have to make a lot less room for yourself than that you'd have to make a lot more room for God and trust is measured in prayer. At least it's one of the ways that we know. The frequency with which we talk to God about things. I mean, how often do most of us, when we're honest, talk to God about anything that we have control of? One of my least favorite things about working with Pastor Dave, and there's, you know, there's so many, because, you know, it's so terrible, is that we'll be talking about something, you know, and if I'm there, we're talking about it for a long time. And at some point, you know, Dave will start to say something, and, um, and he'll say, well, he'll just start praying. He'll, instead of, like, answering and saying the other thing, he'll go, and Lord, this is what we asked for. And he'll just start praying. And then, and then I go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're supposed to do that. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, I was totally going to do that, too, good one day, and then I prayed, too. It's, it's ridiculous how far we have to get before we go, you know, God, can I just give this thing over to you? Can I trust you? And yet, honestly, the people who, uh, who pray the most are often some of the oldest people I know. And it's not just because they're tired and it's easy to do, low energy. It's because they've lived enough life to realize, number one, I don't have control over as much as I think I do. And number two, God is the one who seems to really be doing the things that have ultimately mattered the most. That there have been enough situations where I've put in all this stress and all this effort, all this worry, tried so hard to make things one way, and then I go to realize that God is ultimately the one that has been in control. What if I had just acknowledged that? What if I had given that to him? How different would it have been? I can't think of a better example of this than Jesus in the garden praying to the Father before his crucifixion. He says he is very worried. He is sad. He has just had probably the best night with his closest friends of his life. And he is now giving that up marching to his death. And his prayer to God is, God, uh, please take this cup from me. But he doesn't stop there and go, okay, so I'm going to do is I'm going to walk away 
and then if you want me to do this, then you'll force me to, right? It'll happen. And if not, then I'll know that you said, no, Jesus is actually another way that I forgot to tell you about, so you're good. No, Jesus says, but not, not my will, but your will be done. He actually, in a situation where Jesus can change the outcome, he has the ability to do that, he in that situation says, God, I trust you. And that's why we read that he emptied himself out, even to the point of death. I think the last thing that we see here is to be more grateful. Humility and trust and gratefulness, I believe, are what you see uh, developing and as the goal for those who truly do grow and mature in the faith. If I believe that God is gracious and generous with me, then I will be grateful. Gratefulness is measured by a person's ability to be satisfied with anything or with nothing. It is waking up with a sense of, I am, I am grateful for what I have received and experienced and who I am in Christ before anything else comes into the picture. Any situation where people are, are treated well, you can see gratefulness because they've been given a lot, or you might not. I was hesitant to give this sort of illustration, but it came to my mind so many times this week as I was thinking about gratefulness and God's grace. And I was hesitant to give this illustration because it, it's about somebody who was mourning the loss of a family member. And I think there is, like, we all mourn totally differently. We grieve in different ways. And it really drives me crazy when people are like, Ed, you should feel this way or do this thing instead of, you know, this thing that you're doing or feeling because that's how I do it. Um, but I'm going to share it with you anyway because I really think that it illustrates this idea of gratefulness. Um, several months ago, Rebecca Shea passed away. Sorry, I made you spit out. <laughs> several months ago, Rebecca Shea passed away. And um, it was a great loss. Um, a great, great loss for everyone who knew her, and especially her family. And at her service, at her memorial service, um, her father, Jim, was speaking. And he said, um, people have asked me a lot about, or I've asked myself a lot, you know, how I feel towards God losing Rebecca earlier than I had ever hoped to. Um, do I feel bitter? Do I feel resentful? Do I feel frustrated? Do I feel, like, angry at God for that? And, and, I, and, I, and I know that he has been through all of those feelings and processed them all, and he said, but the way I feel ultimately more than anything when I think of Rebecca is of God's undeserved grace. Because he said, the period of time that God gave her to me in, in my life, in our life, was undeserved. He said, it is so much more than we deserve. And to have even days with a person. And to acknowledge that this is more than I deserve, than I could ever hope for, is to respond with a heart of gratitude, rather than necessarily where we so often go, which is entitlement, right? To say, God, I deserve more. You owe me more. God, I don't understand how you could love me and love them, and I could still not have them. And, and I say that because I don't know that I've heard and seen a better example of what it looks like to actually miss the grace of God in his abundance and his blessing because perhaps we're prone to feel entitlement instead. You see, when you are in an environment where you're given a lot, your response will be entitlement or gratitude. Entitlement comes from thinking I deserve the things that I have and I should have more of them, thinking I need these things that I'm used to having. And, and, and entitlement breeds resentment and bitterness and pride. But gratefulness says I am truly blessed to have what I have been given. That if God has given to me in abundance beyond what I have deserved, then that changes the way that I can approach the whole world. And it gives me the freedom to let go of so much of myself and my expectations of what I need 
and have to have for myself. We are rich beyond measure. We are blessed beyond comprehension and we are loved no matter what. And there is not one day, one hour, or one minute when we ought not to be grateful. And gratefulness produces peace. It produces contentment. It produces generosity. How can we possibly be generous in the way we live our lives if we feel entitled to more than we've been given? If we feel like we don't have enough? Do you see how striving for these things leads them to so much of how Jesus called us to live. But it's not by just trying to, to, to do the things he calls us to do, but to actually be the person that he calls us to be, which is someone who says, I know that less of me is the answer. I know that gratefulness is the answer. I know that trust in God is the answer. And I know that more of him is the answer. But it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with those things. Because the truth is, there is more to what we're called to, what's expected of us. Does he not care how we live then? Does he not care about the virtues and the love that he calls us to in so much of his ministry? Well, I quoted Second Peter before, what Peter says about this idea of partaking in, uh, in the nature of God because we're free from the bondage of sin. But he continues on after that. And what he continues on and says after that is this. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. We're like, there they are. There's the specifics. Yes, okay. The word that he gives, when he talks about what it would be to live without these things, he says ineffective. And that word ineffective, when you translate it, it literally means useless. He says if you want to be useful, if you want your faith to be useful in this life that you live, it will then be supplemented with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge of self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is, is philo love. It's love because of the relationship I have with every brother around me. And with, and with love, agape, which is, which is which is to treat people as though they matter as much, regardless of their relationship to me. My closest friends, the people in my family that mean the most to me. You see, and he goes on, he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Last but not least, we are called to virtue and love. But the reason that we say it is last and not least is because the difference between the law condemning us again and again, running into the wall again and again, feeling like a failure again and again, aiming for the wrong thing in what it means to grow and to mature is if we set out to be virtuous people. Even if we set out to be loving people, to, to, to change our behavior, and if we make the behavior and what that looks like specifically to others the goal, because that's what happens, right? I mean, when we're honest, virtue ends up becoming more about how other people see my actions and what I do. It's why we're, we're practically incapable as a, as a culture of doing anything good without, you know, very carefully, of course, telling everybody about it. Because virtue is ultimately about how others see me. And love is about the relationships that I have in my life and doing better with those things than other people would. If the goal is those things, that's more of you. That's making yourself better. That's making yourself a better product. That is a billboard for yourself. 
rather than, instead, seeking to empty yourself and have more of Christ. And as I take on more of him, then this crazy thing that happens is the virtues that happen. And Jesus tells us what those virtues look like. He tells us what love looks like in and outside of the church. But those things are what happen as a result of it. The reason we talk about this stuff is because we have to have something to fix our eyes on, to fix our gaze on. We have to have something on the horizon to say, that is what I want to be like. That's what I want to look like. That's how I want my life to work out to. And as I've been thinking about this this week, I've been thinking about so much of the anxiety, the fear, the insecurity, the, the, the effort that goes into um, everything from how people see me to the things I accomplish to the comfort and the money that I have. And I think if somebody had told me, if they said, at the end of your life, you can, in your final days of life, be completely grateful. You can be grateful. How would it feel to know that now? To know that you don't know how much you will have, you don't know how many people you will have, you do not know how long ahead from now that will be, and you don't know what kinds of relationships will be there. But you do know that you can, in that place, be grateful. I'd say, well, I think that would be enough. And this is ultimately what we see in Peter, in Paul, in the people who, even at the end of their life, are overwhelmed with the sense of, of peace and of gratefulness, of humility, and of trust in God. Is the ability to say, I can be grateful. I can be someone who is grateful to God regardless of the circumstances of my life. And isn't that ultimately what we really want, is to be able to say, I am grateful. I have reason to trust. I have reason to not think that I'm the best person in the world because of the life that I've lived and all of the things that I've done up till now. That is ultimately the goal that they talk about as well in Scripture. The response of this in so many ways is to pray is to praise God. We struggle to pray. We struggle to worship. And much of the reason we struggle for those things is because uh, much of the time we're focused on the wrong things. The rest of the time. And so as we worship, and as we spend time reflecting and praying, would you do that? Would you, would you perhaps instead of ask God for the things you can't control, give over to him the things that you Instead of asking him for the things that you want and deserve, would you thank him and be grateful for that which you have? 